Sensibly Speaking podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you for another Rock'em Sock'em episode of Awesomeness here on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher, as well as with video here on YouTube. All right, folks, this week we are going to talk about the United States, and specifically the United States as a Christian nation. This is a very controversial topic, and I know right away people are like, oh, you know, hackles are already going up out there. Of course it is, and other people, of course it's not. And, you know, the very, very strong feelings about this, and I'm well aware of that, and which is why I'm tackling it. I think there is a lot to talk about on this because there are a lot of nuanced views on both ends of this, and a lot of historical evidence and documents have been trolled, you know, gone through and, and culled and looked at to determine what were the intentions of the founding fathers? Were they theists? Were they deists? Were they really believers? Uh, even if they were believers, does that really matter? Because, you know, is that something they were trying to project on the entire nation? Well, you know, and how has the Supreme Court dealt with this question over the years? I mean, we've had a couple centuries of this now. And regardless of what the founding fathers said, Sometimes court interpretations take things in a whole different direction, and we got to deal with that because that's kind of how they set it up. So there's a lot to talk about here, and so in order to do this and give it some justice, and also because I'm just really super excited about this guest, I have uh, a constitutional attorney. His name is Andrew Seidel. Now, Andrew, did I get your last name right? Because I butcher everybody's name. (laughs) I, we say it's Seidel, but I usually don't notice, and I wouldn't have if you had not asked, actually. So. Okay, well, I, I, try to, I try to take a little bit of measure to get it right after I butcher it, of course, because that's, <laughs> that's just kind of my shtick. So Andrew is the author of a new book called The Founding Myth, Why Christian Nationalism is Un-American. And he is a constitutional attorney who works at the Freedom From Religion Foundation, FFRF. And he's litigated cases about religion and about the Constitution. He's also appeared on Fox and Friends, on MSNBC, on The O'Reilly Factor, and, of course, on radio and, and other uh, outlets. And you can find him at Andrew L. Seidel on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, okay, Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on, Chris. It's a pleasure. Awesome, man. It's definitely a pleasure is mine. Um, now I, I'm going to just say right from the get go that I'm going to, you know, we're going to, I'm going to ask you questions and stuff about this, but I, you know, really want to get my own bias out of the way that I am on the same side as you are on this in terms <laughs> of, you know, the United States not being a Christian nation, but, uh, that itself can be a problematic statement because mm-hmm. people have different ideas about what that even means. And so you say, well, it's a Christian nation. It's not a Christian nation. Well, what are you talking about? Do you mean that it wasn't founded on Christian principles? Do you mean we are not majorly a Christian nation? Because we clearly are. Like what, you know, how is, should there be no wall between church and state? What are we talking about when we say we're not a Christian nation? So that's the best place to start for sure. When you're having the conversation, getting on the same page to what that means. And you know, a, a lot of times when you push back on the notion that America was founded as a Christian nation, there is sort of this this fallback where people will say, well, I really just meant, you know, that there most of the people were Christians, like you said. 
But that's, I mean, that's, that's not an interesting question. It's not an interesting point. It, it doesn't show us or tell us anything. Nobody really is talking about that. It's also, it's not controversial, which as you pointed out, this topic is. So, I mean, nobody really is talking about that. That's a dodge. What we're talking about when we're talking about America as a Christian nation is, was this founded as a Christian nation? And if you want to be more specific about what that means, it's did Judeo-Christian principles positively influence the founding of the United States of America? That's how I sort of conceptualize the question. And that is the question that I set out to investigate in the founding myth. And, and I think it's very clear that the answer to that is no. Judeo-Christian principles did not positively influence the founding of the United States of America. And in, in fact, I, I'll take it a step farther. What I like to point out and what I try to, the argument I try to make in the book is that Judeo-Christian principles are actually fundamentally opposed to the principles on which this nation was built. There, there is a irreconcilable disconnect, irreconcilable differences so that the founders actually had to divorce state and church. So, and, and that's the argument that I make in the founding myth. And I'm, I'm happy to do it again right here with you. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we will walk through some points of this. And I was actually a little surprised when I opened your book and saw that, that you had taken it that far. Yeah. Um, and I get it. You know, I actually, I understand why you're making that argument and, and you lay it out and we'll walk through some points of that. And of course, you know, as as mentioned earlier, there are whole books written. There's, you know, there's a lot of books on this topic, actually, when you start diving into it. And um, and there are various levels of nuance to the arguments. But there are people who have made, you know, stated just as definitively, oh, no, absolutely. It's definitely based on Judeo-Christian principles. (laughs) And we are absolutely a Christian nation. And so let's walk through a couple of points here historically that might help build the case for mm-hmm. what you're talking about here, starting with, um, you know, the, the Supreme Court, which, whose job is to interpret what the Founding Fathers actually meant. Right? I mean, do I have that? Would you say that's uh, an accurate thing? I mean, their their job is certainly to interpret the Constitution. Um, And more and more, we are seeing them relying on history to do that. Uh, But that that can actually be a problem. And you've you've actually encapsulated the problem already by pointing out that there are books written across the spectrum that are answering just this one particular issue. And what the Supreme Court is very good at, judges in particular, uh, is something called law office history, which is cherry-picked history meant to support a legal conclusion rather than a historical investigation that reaches the conclusion that history would dictate. Uh, and I'm actually writing, a, there's a law review article I've written that's it's being published next month on this very subject because judges are very bad historians for the most part, but they're good at cherry-picking history to support their conclusions. And you you see that all all throughout our jurisprudence, but especially when it comes to interpreting the relationship between state and church. Hmm. Now, that is an interesting thing you've just said, because I have to ask you then, um, mm-hmm. you know, on, uh, you know, human beings, I, I have spent quite a bit of time because of my own past and whatnot, looking into biases and prejudices and views and motivated reasoning and how people arrive to conclusions and ideas about things. 
And it sounded like, from what you just said, that the Supreme Court can be, well, one, they're made up of humans. <laughs> so, surprise, you know, the bias <laughs> enters in, which yeah. is why you have to have multiple, you know, many of them to sort of counter one another's biases in a way, is I think the theory there. But are you saying then that these biases have kind of gotten out of control in in certain areas or... Yeah, I think I think I absolutely think that's fair to say. I mean, I I'm a I'm an attorney. I, I practice in this particular area of law. I know it backwards and forwards, and I can tell you with certainty that the Supreme Court, and not just the Supreme Court, but judges in particular, you know, they're not always these impartial arbiters of law. They're they're meant to be, but they are they are certainly not free from the bias. I mean, you don't have to be on my side to realize that. I mean, Mitch McConnell held open a seat for that very reason. I mean, they're shoving through 150 plus judges now because they want them to be judges whose bias agrees with their bias. Uh, I mean, so, they, you know, everybody understands this and agrees with it. We sort of um, let this fiction grow that they are impartial. And most of the time, I think they can do a pretty good job. But on some areas, and especially when you're talking about religion and the law, mixing uh it, it can get it can get pretty scary and pretty the biases definitely come out and um, okay fair enough i understood on that and um interesting so we go to history and we look at the fact that we have a, a judge writing back in 1892 mm -hmm. uh there is the holy trinity v united states case which i'm sure you've mm -hmm. heard about or know something mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. uh because it was said um, the Supreme Court justice actually wrote uh, that America is a Christian nation. He literally wrote mm -hmm. those words uh, as part of the decision or part of the judgment on that. And I'm curious, what's your response to a Supreme Court judge saying, hey, flat up, no, nope, this, this is what it is, you know? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a good question. And I do touch on that in the book. But I mean, first of all, it's 1892. Right. I mean, it's no real it's not really any different than a judge saying that today, a Supreme Court justice saying that today. He was not there at the founding. He doesn't know. He wasn't sitting in the Constitutional Convention and, and hearing George Washington and James Madison say, yep, we're we're founding a Christian nation right here. Um, and in fact, he wouldn't have heard that because none of them said anything like that. Uh, so, and Brewer, the justice who you're talking about, actually went on to write a whole book about what he meant when he said this. And it's a, th it's a throwaway comment in the decision. It's not central to what they were trying to figure out in the case at hand. Um, I mean, so, so to me, it is very, very weak evidence to support the argument. Because again, if we're talking about the interesting the controversial question about America being a Christian nation, we're asking, did Judeo-Christian principles positively influence the founding of the United States of America? And a conclusory statement by a Supreme Court justice is not really evidence on that point. I mean, the best evidence on that point, and I've had debates about this, I just had a debate uh, with a scholar who's got a book coming out, uh, I think actually his book's out now, um, it was up on C-SPAN uh, last month, you know, I said, just name one Judeo-Christian principle on which our nation is founded. Name one. And that positively influenced. And, and they can't really do that. Instead, what they do are say things like, well, we value human life. Uh, 
that's a Judeo-Christian principle, and the United States is founded on that. But that's a pretty attenuated stretch to make. And it's also, that's a universal human principle, right? I mean, every society we know of, to some extent, values human life. And to claim that for one particular religion is really just arrogance. I mean, it's not, it's not proof of what they're looking for. Uh, they said, what else did he say? Things like Imago Dei that were formed in the image of God. Um, that somehow is a founding principle. I mean, it, all they have to do is point to these founding principles and show how they are woven into the fabric of our constitution and our system of government and laws. And you can do that for some things, but none of them are positive. Right? So, <laughs> well, interesting and, point and there. That's the, that's the big, that's the big rub. So they don't want to claim things like, yes, my religion influenced the constitution in that my religion very much sanctions slavery and provides a license from God to own slaves uh, that was used by slaveholders at the time of the founding and was written into the constitution. They don't want to claim that influence, but it is one that they can legitimately claim. I mean, I understand why they don't want to, but that's, that's well, all they've got. <laughs> sure. Fair enough. I recall reading about this um, decision or about this uh, th- this writing. I, de- I had not been aware of the fact that that particular justice had actually written a whole book clarifying this. But it, yeah, and it's it came... actually I don't re- I don't remember the exact title of the book, but the title is something like "Did America Have a Christian Founding?" You know, it's like it's it's right on point to that quote because people disagreed with him at the time. Yeah, it's interesting. And I thought uh, in a, it, what I did read in a summary, and I was I wanted to ask you about this thought was that he basically made the argument that he was saying that it was a cultural claim, not a legal yeah. claim. Correct, correct. And, and, those, he, and he clarifies what would you that say in that, the book for the most part. Yeah, what's the difference there? Because are you, in your book and, and in your argument, are you making a cultural argument or are you making a legal argument or a I, different argument entirely? I make, I'm making a legal argument. My point is that Judeo-Christian principles didn't influence our government or our system of laws or the constitution. Um, It's certainly Christianity has influenced our culture. I'm happy to concede that. I mean, you know, there are so many biblical idioms in our language, uh, rivaled really in number only by Shakespeare. I mean, it's, it definitely, the religion has had an impact on our culture. Um, And again, you can also point out to many, you know, not positive ways that that's the case. But that's again not that interesting a question to me. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't really show, it, and it doesn't really go to the central question that I think people are talking about. It. It's not. I haven't really heard anybody seriously make the argument that Christianity didn't influence our culture in some way, shape, or form. So that that's not the controversial question. That's not the question that people are talking about when they're batting around the, the phrase Christian nation. Well, it's interesting, and I and I'm glad that we've hit this hit on this right away uh, through the Supreme Court question because I think that it's an it's a key part of defining the battleground on which this argument is being made because I think yeah. a lot of the pushback that you get, especially from believers, you know, who are not lawyers, who are not aware of the fact that there could even be a difference between a cultural question and a legal question. And they're coming at it from the cultural point of view. They've been raised Christians. They've, you know, they've been told from the pulpit that this is a Christian nation. 
that God smiles upon the United States, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, these you've heard the rhetoric. You know what I'm talking about. And I hear it every get, day. Yeah, when you get raised <laughs> with this sort of thing. And then somebody like you comes along and goes, well, it's not a Christian nation. They go, what? You know, you're assaulting my very existence yep. and, you know, reality. So I so I, I, I thought this might be an important point to differentiate. No, it, you're, you're absolutely right. It's, it's, a, it's a crucial point. And you've hit, you've hit on two things there that I think. One, it, it does strike at their, their very identity. And that's deliberate. I'm, I am set out to do that in this book. I believe that Christian nationalism is an existential threat to our republic. The idea that we are founded as a Christian nation that we were based on Judeo-Christian principles isn't just this standalone scholarly debate, right? It is being used to justify all manner of incredibly harmful public policy right now. So the child separation policy that the Trump administration has imposed at the border was justified with Romans 13, with the Bible. They pointed to the Bible to say, this is perfectly okay. They learned how to do that in the White House Bible study. That is Christian nationalism. The Muslim ban is Christian nationalism. Not only did it ban immigration from Muslim majority countries, it also favored immigration for Christians, which many people don't remember. And the list for this goes on and on and on. The opposition to LGBTQ rights and marriage equality is almost exclusively religious and specifically Christian nationalist. Uh, the opposition to women's rights and women's equality is almost exclusively Christian nationalist. And there's not just at the federal level, there's something called Project Blitz, which everybody should go Google if they don't know about. You want to talk about it later? Well, I do. I, ha I yeah. have actually, yes, we are going to get to that in detail. I mean, it's an explicit state level push. So, so Christian nationalism is this existential threat to our country. And my goal with the founding myth was not just to have this scholarly debate. I am setting out to destroy that identity. So. One, I'm trying to do that. But two, I do set the parameters of that debate in the, the first part of the book. I, I make this very clear at the beginning. This is what we're talking about. This is the question that I investigated. Did Judeo-Christian principles positively influence the founding of the United States? And I'm talking about it from a legal, from a constitutional, from a government perspective. But what I'm really trying to do is give it's kind of two different things, really. I, mean, I want to give all readers out there like us who already kind of agree with this position better arguments because we hear the same arguments from our side time and time again, the same quotes, the Treaty of Tripoli, things like this, and they're not working. And I, I have these arguments, literally, this is not an exaggeration, every single day I do this for a living and I have honed them to a fine edge and I want people to be able to use them in their own arguments. This, these will get the founding myth, read the arguments, understand them, employ them. You will have much more success. And the second thing I'm trying to do is to wake the middle section of the country, the people who may not have heard of Christian nationalism or realize that it's, it's a problem, to wake them up to the threat and to prove to them that it is wrong. Excellent. Well, thank you for clarifying that because that's a, that's a really important point. And I want to—I just want to remind the audience again, because I really want to stress this point that we're not talking about a cultural question here. We're talking about a legal question, and these are two very different things. And um, I think if you guys have been following, you know, my work about cults, 
and you go, well, how is it that, you know, everybody knows this is wrong, and yet legally we can't seem to do anything? Well, that's, again, a difference between cultural and legal, right? It's like mm -hmm. everybody can see something or can think something, but that doesn't mean legally that that's the truth or that that's the way it's going to happen or that's the way it's going to go down that way or that it should, you know, because <laughs> cultures change. The law should be a steady eddy as, as much as we can keep it that way. Um, interesting. This is such an interesting question. Um, okay, so the Supreme Court, cool. And we've, and, and I think that differentiation, you know, sort of shows that in fact, you and that Supreme Court justice at the time are actually making the same argument that legally, this isn't it. You know, like they might, like I know people use this to refute this question. Well, the Supreme Court said, no, actually, the Supreme Court actually actually is on our side on this. You know? um, now, there's other the other thing that's presented here, and again, this is um, you know this isn't a legal question, but it gets brought up, and it's and it's certainly an official thing on the part of the U.S. government. You go to the U.S. Treasury website, and you go looking to why it is that we've got in God we trust on our currency and our coinage. And the currency is from the 1950s, and we know about the Red Scare. I've done videos about this. We've talked about this. But the coinage goes actually all the way back to an act of Congress from April 22, 1864, mm -hmm. that we first see in God We Trust popping up on coins. And this was right, this was post-Civil War, and this was a directly because people of the faith were writing to the Treasury Secretary of the United States saying, there's no reflection of our religious faith on our money. This should be remedied. And he agreed mm -hmm. and pushed it through Congress, and Congress agreed. So mm -hmm. if, the, if the Secretary of the Treasury is saying this, they're literally minting coins as an official designation from the United States that in God we trust, then how can you possibly make the argument that we are not a Christian nation? Well, I mean, I go, I have a whole part of the book. So there's four parts. Part four is what I call American verbiage. It's, it's argument by idiom. And it is exactly what you're talking about. It's in God we trust. It's one nation under God. It's so help me God. And it's God bless America. And I tell kind of the stories of these phrases that constantly get thrown in our face. And to me, the first point is always, well, yeah, but none of those are from the founding of our nation, right? And if the founders had intended to build a Christian nation, they might have done something like that. The fact that they didn't and that that needed to be quote unquote corrected shows maybe that they didn't found this as a Christian nation. So that's, I mean, that's the opening salvo. But to me, this is one of those areas where I think the founding myth really helps people on our side understand that there are better arguments out there. Because if you look at how these things happen and what the story is behind them, it's not just that they're late to the party, that they're not from the founding era. It's that they wipe out earlier unifying sentiments and that Christian nationalists, a small group of Christian nationalists, did that deliberately. This was a deliberate attempt to impose Christianity on a nation that was preoccupied with the Civil War, that was preoccupied with the Red Scare. So it's Christian nationalists taking advantage of times of fear and national strife to impose their religion on the entire country 
at a time when the country and citizens can't push back because to push back seems un-American. So they're doing this deliberately. And it really, if we can capture those stories and tell them in a better way, we're, we're going to make more progress against these arguments. One nation under God used to be one nation indivisible, literally dividing the indivisible with God, historically the most divisive idea in all of human history, right? In God we trust replaced e pluribus unum, from many one, from many people, one country, from many states, one nation. This great unifying sentiment wiped out for a statement that, you know, less than uh, three quarters of Americans believe today. So, and they did it on purpose. If you actually, you mentioned the April 1864 act, but the push to put in God we trust on our coins actually started in 1863. And it was by one preacher, a guy named Mark Watkinson, who reached out to the secretary of the treasury, Salmon Chase, who was trying to get, this. and the story, I, t I tell it all uh, in detail in the founding myth. You can tell it's just these three guys all Christian nationalists who want to use this time. He actually, the phrase they used was that it was propitious, propitious. It was lucky that we were in the middle of a civil war because they could get the coin, the, the, that phrase on our coinage. Um, so they were deliberately taking advantage of these times of national fear and crisis. So are you saying that there are people who actually would take advantage of horrible, yes. awful circumstances <laughs> to play on the emotions of people and get them riled up in a direction that maybe they shouldn't be pushed in? Are you, I, Really? I, I'm, I'm saying exactly that. And I'm saying that that is not a reflection. As a, as a result, that's not a reflection of our founding principles and our founding values. It's a betrayal of our founding values. And, you know, we, we talked about this not being a cultural argument. And, and I do agree with that. And, I, I, and factually, I certainly agree with it. But what Christian nationalism is seeking to do at its most basic level, what this argument for them is about at its most basic level and why they can't tease out the cultural from the legal is what it is to be an American. And they are trying to say that to be an American is to be a Christian and to be a Christian is to be an American. And that is something that I'm, an idea that I'm absolutely trying to destroy in the founding myth because patriotism has no religion. And that is something that we really need to reclaim from the Christian nationalists. Excellent. Well, let's go ahead and get right into this business of Christian <laughs> nationalism then, because this comes up, it's in your title. It's, mm -hmm. it's a strong position because you start talking about nationalism and it brings to mind, you know, jackbooted thugs you know, and, and, and maybe a, an overreaching military and all kinds of other crazy things from history. And we need to be clear that, yeah, those things are late stage you know, uh, things you see and hear from this, from, from fascist nationalist platforms, mm -hmm. but it doesn't start there. And, Correct. and what we're seeing with Christian nationalism is, is a lot of overreach. And I, and I'm, you know, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. I'm saying that, um, I've seen Project Blitz. Uh, if folks out there have not seen or heard anything about this, it's a Google search away. It is not hard to find this stuff. Um, and this is, you know, this is an, an effort, uh, a series of, of steps and targets and programs that are being implemented at the national level 
by religious groups in co- in coordination with certain government officials who are very very sympathetic to that cause of quote unquote religious freedom. You've been hearing mm-hmm. about religious freedom coming out of our White House even recently, and this is code word though. This is the religious freedom is a is a phrase that doesn't mean what you think it means. It, <laughs> and it I want yeah, and, and you you go into this, and I want to I want to talk about this because. First off, I'm curious if you have um, if you can answer a question about numbers on this. If you were to do sure. a broad survey across the U.S., you know, from the research that you've done of how many Christians actually support evangelical political movements like the Old Moral Majority or the kind of work that Jerry Falwell Jr. is doing with Liberty University or that Franklin Graham is doing with Samaritan Purse, you know, mm-hmm. how much support do these guys actually have? Because I talk to Christians or I talk to interact with Christians on social media who are like, I ain't down with any of that. That's crazy talk, you know. So how but there are people who profess to be people of faith who are 1000 percent behind this. How much of a problem is this, according to the research you've done? Well, it's a, certainly a big problem in terms of demographics. It's probably the, I mean, and this is ballpark. Don't quote me about a quarter of the country would be my guess. They have an outsized influence. I mean, if you look at the 2016 election, the number one way to pick out a Trump voter from that election was asking them, do you think the United States was founded as a Christian nation? And if they answered yes to that, they're admitting to Christian nationalism. You know, I mean, for instance, if you ask somebody, are you a Christian nationalist? Nobody's going to answer yes. But if you ask them questions to determine whether or not they are, um, those people, that was the biggest relation to a Trump voter. That was the best way to pick a Trump voter out of the lineup was asking that question. So Trump rode this wave of Christian nationalism. He tapped into this vein and rode it into the most powerful office in the history of the world. Uh, I mean, this has been done before in the past, but not during our lifetimes. No president has really tapped into this um, undercurrent of Christian nationalism in our country. And he is in there, as we discussed at the beginning, he's in there implementing these policies that are absolutely Christian nationalist right now. So uh, in terms of numbers, I think it's less, um, we, we ought to focus less on the numbers and focus more on the influence that it has right now. And it, at this particular moment, it's got far too much influence. Fair enough. And I and I just, um, I'm always interested in, you know, how many people out there are buying into what's being pushed down the line here. And I, and I agree with your numbers. I think it is about 25% based on the research I've done on this. Uh, but I am curious, though, because we, you know, one of the things that is, um, that, that we want to be careful about is not connecting dots that don't really connect, but sound like maybe they should. I mean, this is the sort mm-hmm. of thing conspiracy theorists do, <laughs> right? Like, well, he attended a meeting that he attended, so therefore they must be, you know, in cahoots or something. So are we looking at an actual, you know, when you look at evangel- evangelical leaders like Jerry Falwell Jr. or, you know, and the, and the line of the tradition that these people come from, Billy Graham and you know, Jerry Falwell and, and Pat Robertson and, the, you know, 700 Club and these guys. And you see somebody like Mike Pence, you know, who's clearly on, an, a, a, you know, a thousand percent on the evangelical platform, gets himself into the White House, you know, go Mike Pence, this is our man, we're going to make this happen. And then you start seeing documentaries like The Family, 
mm-hmm. um, you know, on Netflix where you see this, you know, Alex Gibney lay out this five part, you know, documentary about how there is, you know, way too much religious influence and overreach into right into the seats of power of our of our government. And then you see religious freedom councils and and conferences and things and trump you know blasting this and you hear that trump is like being compared to king david and he's our man he's god's chosen and this starts think you start thinking maybe these dots really are connecting but i want to be clear you know again from your research how organized is this effort are we just connecting dots that we really shouldn't be connecting is this just a bunch of grandstanders and opportunists who are trying to ride a a wave of sympathy or political sentiment that is favorable to to religion, or is this actually an organized effort? Yeah, those are those are all excellent questions. Uh, and I, when I was writing the founding myth, I wanted to answer those too, and it quickly became obvious to me that those are two different books, right? Like, so there is all this great scholarly research that has been done and is being done on the organizational side of things and studying Christian nationalism as a political movement. Um, The the statistics I was just mentioning about uh, the number one characteristic of Trump voters being Christian nationalist, that's research done by Andrew Whitehead out of Clemson University. He's got a great new book coming out. Catherine Stewart has a book called The Power Worshippers coming out that's on this topic. You mentioned The Family on Netflix. That's a Jeff Charlotte uh, wrote that book um, actually back in 2006 or 2008, I think. And then he followed it up with a book called Sea Street. They've all done a great job of documenting this and showing this. And we've seen books, other books like that throughout history and even exposés. The Miami Herald had a big one too. But none of the, the answers to those questions or those books have stopped it. And that's what I'm seeking to do with the founding myth. I don't care what their organizational structure is. I don't care how... Uh, dialed in to the HHS division they are or to uh, the Department of, of Housing. My goal is to destroy that identity, to show that that belief system is fundamentally un-American. Uh, and now a lot of those books also touch into that. I mean, if you watch the Netflix on fam, uh, the family on Netflix, um, you know, Jeff Charlotte, uh, talks about how it's unde- the, the organization is undemocratic and it's pushing these undemocratic ideals. And there's a part where they show his diary. Uh, and it's actually his notebook from the time when he was researching this group. And he has in there a uh, sentence that says, this is not America. You know, he, he's making those same connections, but he's not out to, they're looking at it from a scholarly standpoint. I'm out there fighting it. And that's what the founding myth is. This is, this is a fight. I'm a street brawler. I'm out there trying to end it. Uh, that being said, I come to my street fights with tons and tons of facts and legal arguments. So there's a lot, there's a lot of scholarship in there as well. Well, let's talk about some of those arguments, because I think there will definitely be listeners right now going, what do you mean it's un-American? What are you talking about? Yeah. Right. So, so how is Christian nationalism un-American? Because, I, I, you know, that statement right there you know, there are going to be people who are like, fuck <laughs> you. It's as American as apple pie and, you know, my my gun rack. So what the hell, dude? How do you get off saying I, that, right? Yes, you're absolutely right. And to, to me, it goes, we can take it right back to that first question. You know, 
did Judeo-Christian principles positively influence the founding of the United States of America? That's again, that's the central question that that answers whether or not we're a Christian nation and all the peripheral questions that pop up. And the answer is no, they didn't. America was not founded on Judeo-Christian principles. And it's a good thing because those principles, Christian principles, Judeo-Christian principles, biblical principles, especially those that are central to Christian nationalism, are fundamentally opposed to the values on which the United States was built. There is such fundamental and thorough opposition. The two systems differ and conflict to such a degree that it's fair to say that Christian nationalism is un-American, which is the subtitle of my book. And I try to show throughout my book, that is the argument that I make, that there are these two conflicting systems, that there are these irreconcilable differences. That is the founding myth. And I, I break the book up into kind of four different parts to show that. So part one is all about our pre-constitutional history. I look at the founding fathers, uh, what they believed, what they may not have believed. I look at the Declaration of Independence, um, our colonial history. Uh, part two is actually looking at the principles the United States was built on and biblical principles and comparing them. And you do find that there's this fundamental disconnect. I mean, so to take, you know, one central biblical principle, the idea of vicarious redemption through human sacrifice, I mean, that is a fundamentally un-American idea. The idea of hell, eternal torture and punishment uh, for a crime is fundamentally un-American. Read our Eighth Amendment, it prohibits cruel and unusual punishment. And in part three, I go through the Ten Commandments. Every single one of the Ten Commandments I walk through and I compare them to the Constitution. This is actually, um, this is where I started writing the book. I started it with the idea that it was just going to be a law review article. I was just going to compare the Ten Commandments, each one of them, to our, our founding documents. Uh, because there was a Supreme Court justice who said, yes, they clearly influenced it. And when I read it, I thought, thank you that can't be right. I'm going to write a law review article about this. And then it just got way out of hand. Um, <laughs> and it turns, it turns out that if you read those Ten Commandments, they are fundamentally opposed to our founding principles. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. It would be really hard to write a statement that is more at odds with our First Amendment than that. Um, so I, I walk through every one of the Ten Commandments, and it turns out that every single one of them, every one, Yes, even the ones that your listeners are thinking like, well, hey, what about that one? Because that one seems like it's got an awful lot of overlap. Yes, even that one. Uh, I'm not going to give away why. You have to get the book to do that. But uh, yes, even that one. So that's part three. And then part four, is we kind of already talked about it. That's the American verbiage, the argument by idiom, all these. I shouldn't have had to write it because the argument, that argument is so bad. Um, but because it comes up so often, I did. Okay, now I've got to ask you about this, though, because having just watched, uh, what, Hail Satan, I believe the name of the documentary <laughs> was about Lucius, yeah. right, and his work, yeah. you've, got, you've got Ten Commandments monuments being, being raised up in, you know, in government centers, or at least, at least we've got, you know, one very, what was that, Arkansas? That, they put that uh, yes, that's, that's surrounding the Arkansas one. And that, the Arkansas monument is a new monument that was put up by Senator Jason Rapert. I should say that FFRF is also suing on that right now, too. Uh, and we do expect to win that suit and that that monument will have to come down. Excellent. Uh, well, I definitely am in support of that because I don't, I don't want to see any religious writings of any kind anywhere near our government institutions. I, d I just don't care what the religion is. I don't want to see it. 
But um, but there are an awful lot of people, especially that senator and people who came out and supported that and people around the country who support this kind of thing who tell us we are absolutely dead wrong. So, mm-hmm. like, give me at least one reason why we're not. <laughs> Well, I mean, again, you know, I mean, let's just go, let's just start reading through the commandments. Um, and the first thing that people really need to do, if you encounter this argument, the, the first question out of your mouth really ought to be, okay, so you're saying the Ten Commandments influenced the founding of the United States of America. Well, which Ten Commandments? And most of the time, that is going to slacken a jaw on the other side. Uh, it, it, there are four different sets of Ten Commandments in any given Bible. Exodus 20, Exodus 34, Deuteronomy 5, Deuteronomy 27. Um, the first set of Ten Commandments, the, what we think of as the Ten Commandments, the Charlton Heston Ten Commandments, are not called the Ten Commandments. The second set of Ten Commandments, which end you shall not boil a kid in its mother's milk, those are what are called the Ten Commandments. And just so everybody knows, that's not talking about a human child, that's a baby goat kid. I mean, you could be forgiven for making the mistake, especially given the barbarity in the Bible. Um, but then there's a, I mean, there's a third set, which is basically a retelling of the first set, and then a fourth set, which is cursing a bunch of different people, usually for sexual things, um, but called Ten Commandments. Um, so which ones are we talking about? And then the different religions interpret the commandments differently. And they may seem like small differences, but there's no such thing as a small religious difference. I mean... Uh, the difference between not being able to kill and not being able to murder is the difference between being able to defend yourself at night if somebody breaks into your house and not. Now, one group in the church in, in Christendom interpreted the commandment to ban idols. You can't make idols. Another thought it was you can't make graven images. Now, you and I may not know what the difference is between those are, and we may not care, which I think is probably the right stance. But the church went to war with itself over that issue. I mean, they had a civil war and the Christendom went to, it almost extinguished itself over this question. I mean, the, there's no such thing as a small religious difference. And were to believe somehow that these differences, the founding fathers got over them and said, yeah, we're going to base our country on the Ten Commandments, even though there's no evidence of that at all in the constitutional convention notes any anywhere we, we never saw anything like that so that's the first thing no evidence to support it which 10 commandments are you talking about and then just look at read, let's read the 10 commandments i am the lord your god you shall have no other god before me okay that's a command to worship a single god it's not you it, there's it, it's fundamentally opposed to the freedom of religion on which this country was founded I mean, you cannot get more opposed to the freedom of religion than the first few uh, commandments. And again, they're actually numbered differently in different uh, religions as well. So, I mean, we're just, I'm kind of just throwing things out here. I'm the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. Well, I, I, no, I actually want to bring up the point that, you know, you're bringing this point up as a, as a reason why we are not a Christian nation. And I'll just sort of point out for people who might not be aware of how far an extremist mindset can go on this, that there are people who have turned that around in their minds to think that that that's, that's exact proof of why the United States is a Christian nation, because the only religion that should exist is their version, their brand of Christianity, it tends to be evangelical fundamentalism, 
type type of brand when you get into that kind of mindset. And that's that's the kind of person that you're dealing with when you're when you're dealing with somebody who is asserting that the Ten Commandments should be proudly displayed on our capital grounds because that is, you know, where we come from because the First Amendment to religious, you know, guaranteeing religious freedom means the freedom for us to take over the country with our religion. <laughs> is it's, it's it's not. I'm not exactly, you know, like like having to stretch here to to come to those kind of conclusions, you know. No, you don't. But I mean, and and, and this is this, but this goes to why I'm saying that Christian nationalism is, and this idea of a Christian nation is fundamentally un-American. I mean. That first commandment isn't standalone. Like, look at the second commandment is the, the idol or graven image commandment, okay? Don't make an idol or don't make a graven image. That's fundamentally opposed to the First Amendment as well. We have freedom of expression in this country, free speech. You can make any idol and worship it if you want. But if you actually go read the rest of that commandment, it's even worse. Most people don't do this. Most people, you know, the Ten Commandments monuments that sit on government property are edited. So... Here's what the rest of that commandment says. You shall not bow down to them, them being the idols that you are not allowed to make, or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the iniquity of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Okay, That means that God is promising to punish innocent children to the third and fourth generation. Children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren for the crimes of their parents, those crimes being exercising the free expression that our constitution guarantees them, right? I mean, this is a, not only is this fundamentally un-American, it is flat out immoral. But if you were to go to any of the monuments that exist on public property of the Ten Commandments, they don't show that language, which to me is very striking. So they're saying like, here's God's perfect, most moral law. We just have to edit these parts out because it's not very good, right? I mean, it's a, it's a fundamental admission that this is not a good rule and not a good law. And I mean, it, it, it goes on from there. Don't make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, right? Don't take the Lord's name in vain. I mean, again, fundamentally conflicts with the freedom of speech that we so value in this country, right? I mean, it is the you and it continues on like that there's just this fundamental disconnect where you cannot say that the ten commandments influenced the founding of the united states of america and it's worse than that you can say they are fundamentally opposed they are the ten commandments are un-american that's a good point i i have to agree with you on that um it's yeah i get it have you <laughs> do, do you ever uh are you ever amused or or maybe you know grimly a dark joke i don't know how do, how do you look at it when you see people who assert that this is a christian nation 100% the bible is all we need to listen to i'll listen to god before i'll listen to what the law says i've i've literally heard judges say that out loud um striking uh to me when that when i when i first and heard about that wildly stuff. unconstitutional wildly unconstitutional um but i wonder are you ever amused when the same people talk about how they over their dead body would sharia ever be implemented in the united yeah. states yeah i mean it, the, the irony is pretty thick uh and you know i i use i use that analogy the analogy to islam all the time to try to 
convince these devout believers that what they're doing is wrong to, sh to show what they're doing is wrong. Um, and, and sometimes it does, it does land. Um, but it's, you know, it goes back to kind of what you were actually saying just, just a few minutes ago, where they think they're, they're, they're so convinced that their religion is right and that it should be the, the, relig the only religion in the United States that they can't even they, they, they can't even take off the blinders and put themselves in somebody else's shoes enough to see why that's a problem. And of course, that's what you're trying to do with the Islam analogy. Um, and, and there's some of them are just fundamentally incapable of it, which is to, to me um, striking. That be, but that being said, I am not a person who ever thinks that you should not have an argument that it is, uh, you know, hopeless to try to reason with believers um you know and i find this to be uh, an argument on that people make on on my side of things all the time um you know that it, they're, they're hopeless they're a lost cause and, and to me that's just that's just nonsense i mean religion is an idea all it takes is for somebody to change their mind right i mean you don't you don't have to gain 50 iq points overnight to to leave your religion behind all you have to do is just change your mind um, and it's, I've seen it. I mean, my boss, Dan Barker at the Freedom From Religion Foundation was a fundamentalist Pentecostal preacher driving around Mexico, trying to convert people. And he changed his mind. You know, he had the intellectual fortitude to follow and what he saw as the facts and arrived at the truth and realized, you know what, my, I've dedicated my entire life to this. He lost his family you know, his livelihood, everything, but he changed his mind. And yeah, I'm, I'm no longer a Christian. I'm an atheist. And uh, so it, it absolutely can be done. And I don't, I, I don't ever ascribe to the idea that we should not have these arguments or have these conversations with people. Absolutely. And uh, you're certainly talking to a proponent of conversation, critical thinking, and persuasion, you know, rather than force. Um, absolutely. On the question of legal grounds, though, I think this is an important point because, um, you know, at the same time, we don't need to change the hearts and minds of three quarters of the country before we make sure that the laws protect all of us. And I know that's, um, you know, basically where you're coming from on this is, a, as you know, from Freedom From Religion Foundation is, yes. I, I, I maybe we should have clarified this at the beginning, but the idea of Freedom From Religion Foundation is not to make the entire country atheist. <laughs> no, I mean, this, it's, it's a crucial, it's, that's a very crucial point. And we, we kind of touched on, we've talked about the first amendment. We've talked about the first commandment, which is fundamentally opposed. I don't care what people's religion is. Uh, and the beauty of the government that the founding fathers established is that it allows for true religious freedom in a way that never had been done before. Right. There is no such thing as the freedom of religion without a government that is free from religion. A, a secular government is a prerequisite to genuine religious liberty. And the wall of separation between state and church was built in part for that reason. And that, that, wall, that's an Amer that wall is an American original. The idea was born in the Enlightenment, but it was first implemented in the American experiment. No country in the history of the world had sought to protect the rights of conscience of citizens by separating state and church before. That is ours. And it's something that we should take pride in, that we should fight for, that we can be proud of as Americans. 
And it's certainly something that we shouldn't be seeking to undermine with these myths about a Christian nation. So one of the things that I'm really trying to do in the book is encourage people to try to take that heritage back. Uh, you know, it is, it is time to reclaim our heritage and to bury their lies. This is not a Christian nation. Our constitution does not belong to the Christian nationalists. It belongs to we the people, all of the people. And it's about damn time we take it back. That's kind of the, the call that I end the founding myth on. Excellent. Well, it's a strong call and a very, very important one because I think that one of the, probably the single biggest mistake that people make when they get involved in some kind of belief system, not even, doesn't even have to be a religious one, is they start getting the idea of this us versus them. And they start mm -hmm. thinking that, you know, that they start engaging in this black and white thinking. And this is something I've talked about ad nauseum on my channel, obviously, because I deal with destructive cults and extremism, and this is where it really rears its ugly head. The more extremist a person, you know, has gone, the more you see this evident that it's their way or the highway. It must be this belief system. This is the only one that counts, the only one that matters. Nothing else is even worth consideration. And once you enter that headspace, the whole idea of freedom, freedom of thought, freedom of belief, freedom of worship, freedom of whatever, freedom of you know, political freedom to vote, whatever subject matter you're talking about, those freedoms start flying out the window. Yeah. And I find it far beyond words like hypocrisy or disingenuous when, when, when such people start talking about how their, when their motive is to override and, and oppress or suppress any other belief system or any other ideas, and then they call that religious freedom yeah yeah no i mean it's, it's shocking right now and, and there's there's sort of two things tangled up in there first freedom of thought really is one of those foundational american principles and, and values and you know again the 10th commandment says you you can't covet i mean it, that's a thought crime it tries to police your thinking the first three commandments we already talked about also trying to do the same thing but the freedom of thought it's not only a foundational American value, it's the only right that we possess as Americans that is absolutely unlimited. You know, all of our other rights in certain circumstances can be limited and, sh and should be really, it's, a, it's okay, we want that for the most part. Um, we don't want them to be too limited and it varies with circumstance, but it, that does not apply to the freedom of thought. That, that is the, this one absolute, right that we have. And, and what you're talking about, this modern push to redefine religious liberty, to weaponize religious liberty, uh, is, is really, really alarming. And it's something that we've been pushing back against a lot. I mean, what they are trying to, I mean, we, let's, let's break it down, because I think a lot of people have a hard time saying, well, well where, then where do you draw the lines? I don't understand. And everybody's confused now. And it's, it's not confusing. This is really, really easy. Okay, so there's two lines that we're going to draw. The first line we're going to draw is between thought and action, right? You have the absolute freedom of thought. You, we, you and I both did. We just went over that. But you don't have the right to act on that belief. So, for instance, if you believe that God is telling you to kill your child, as he did for Abraham to kill Isaac, or as parents have actually done, you don't get to do that. And if you do do that, it's called murder, and you're going to go to jail for murder. Okay. Nobody really disagrees with that being the right way the law should work. Okay. So 
it's clear that the government can step in, laws can step in when people act, even if those actions are religiously motivated. So, but the question becomes, well, where can the government step in then? So that's the second line we need to draw. The first line is you can believe whatever you want, but when you start acting, maybe it's okay for the government to step in. So second line is, well, then where? And that line is at the beginning of your nose, right? You've, everybody's heard the, some variation of the legal idiom, your right to swing your fists ends where somebody else's nose begins. Well, same is true for your religion. Your right to swing your religion or your rosary or your prayer rug ends where other people's rights begin. Right, so Thomas Jefferson said that it does me no injury if for uh, my neighbor to say that there are 30 gods or no gods. It neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. But if your religion mandates picking pockets or mandates breaking legs, then the secular law can step in and say no, no. So we draw the line where the rights of other people begin. And if you conceptualize all the modern religious attempts to redefine and weaponize religious liberty in those two terms, everything is solved. It's, it's really not that hard. Do you get to discriminate against a gay couple through your business? No, because you're violating their rights. Sorry. I mean, it, it becomes pretty simple once you establish those two lines. And historically, that's where those lines have always been drawn. So, yeah, it, uh, well, it makes it, it makes it difficult when we're engaged in uh, propaganda by redefinition of terms. Mm-hmm. Right. This is, I mean, Orwell spends half his life talking about this stuff. I mean, oh, yeah. you know, and the destruction, this language, this, destruction of words is a beautiful thing is like one of my, I mean, yeah, exactly. So, and so I, so I'd like you to, if you could, cause I'm, I'm curious about this myself. I mean, I'm not, I am not going to d- down a deep dive on this yet. I've only really looked at some, a few things I've sort of skimmed through project blitz. I've sort of looked at dominionism. I've, I've certainly looked at, you know, evangelical influence. We've got the family. Um, you know, how, where is this actually coming from? And I, and I know we're going a little bit off, you know, we're, we're related yeah. to the subject of your book here. We're also kind of diving into that other book that has to be written. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I just since I have you here and and you this is something you this it is your daily bread and butter question, that you're fighting yeah. this you know where does this come from where are we where is this originating from from a place of privilege what what you're seeing right now with Project Blitz with the Muslim ban with all this massive Christian nationalist push at the federal and state level is. They are raging against the dying of their privilege. They can look out, well, they'll look at the demographic studies. I mean, you and I can look at them. We can see which way things are trending. There was one that came out. It was uh, the end of October by Pew that said Christianity is in, quote, steep decline in the United States as nuns, N-O-N-E-S, are on the rise. Uh, And they can read those demographic studies as well as we can. They look out on Sunday mornings. And instead of seeing young smiling faces looking back at them, they're seeing empty wooden pews. Churches are closing all around the country. I mean, and what they are doing is scrambling to codify the privilege that they have so long enjoyed, right? The Christian nationalist is not going to go gently into the obsolescence for which they are bound. They've grown accustomed to religious privilege. They're used to politicians paying lip service to their deity, 
They demand acknowledgments of their God on government property. They expect to be able to promote that God and that religion in our public school system. This is the privilege that they've grown accustomed to. And I mean, really, if you wanted to even simplify it further, I think that you would call that power. I mean, this is a, this is a they have had this power. They want to retain this power. OK, cool. And I agree with you completely. I think that we are seeing, you know, that they're seeing writing on the wall and they're freaking out. Yes. You know, and I think and, and when you see that sort of thing from any group, you know, we've seen this countless numbers of times. You see this just incredible energetic pushback because they feel that they're they're being threatened, exactly like you said. What we've sort of swam around this a little bit, mentioned a few things, but I'd like to I'd like to get a full answer to this question and then maybe we can move toward wrapping up here, because this has really been great. I've really learned a lot here. If we're saying that America was not founded on Christian principles, and and you've sort of, you know, taken some pains here to debunk, like, say, the Ten Commandments, but there are more to Christian principles than the Ten Commandments. You have, you know, you have the things Jesus talks about, all the New Mm -hmm. Testament stuff, Um, you know, and and not all horrible, awful things and not all very self-centered, you know, God things only, you know, being compassionate, you know, turning the other cheek, other, you know, there, there's other things that speak to or have influenced, say, our justice system or the way we think about how to deal with others. But if we're saying, okay, no, we're not, we're not, that's not what our country was actually based on. That's not what the founders were thinking. That's not what they were arguing about when they were arguing how we should do this. What are the principles that the country was founded on? Yeah, and that that's a really good question that everybody should be like. That, I mean, that should be the next obvious step. I mean, and the, the short version is the Enlightenment. I mean, that that is the principles they were founded on, and and they were pretty clear about this. And you know, I get into this a little bit in the book. There are some ideas that we can trace very, very clearly because the founders were explicit. Uh, the separation of powers is a really good example. We know for a fact that that traces to Montesquieu. James Madison drew the line for us. He connected those dots. There's no conspiracy theory that we have to worry about connecting wrong dots here. They, they've got, they did it for us. Um, and really, if you read a, a lot of these stuff, so if you read the records of the Federal Constitutional Convention, or if you read the Federalist Papers, uh, you know it's kind of striking. They often go back to ancient Greece and to Rome, uh, and then they skip ahead and they go to Enlightenment thinkers. Right? And there's this huge gap in their records that has been lamented by many Christian scholars before there was really this huge argument uh, in the academy uh, lately about Christian nationalism, where they said, look, they didn't ever point to the Bible. Why didn't they ever point to the Bible? And it's because the Bible's full of really bad ideas, especially when you're trying to build a government. I mean, every government in the Bible is a theocracy run by a king. I mean, every single one, there's no whiff of representative government anywhere in there. Uh, And I mean, you're right that things get better in the New Testament, but Jesus also said, take no thought for the morrow. And he also called himself king. And whatever he did and said that was good, dude created hell. I mean, it kind of negates all the good stuff that you're doing. And, you know, turning the other cheek is nice, but then torturing somebody for all eternity because they don't believe in you doesn't really mesh well with the turn the other cheek thing, you know? And I mean, so there are still these fundamental disconnects even throughout. And then if you want to get 
more specific, you could say things, well, like, what about the golden rule, right? Jesus talked about the golden rule. It's in the Old Testament too. Yeah, but this is one of those things that's a universal human principle. It is not unique or original to Christianity. And I go over some of the um, formulations of the golden rule that predate Christianity, sometimes by millennia. I mean, there are some like that are we are closer in time to Jesus than some of these other formulations, the Egyptian formulation, for instance. Maybe. We're not exactly sure on the date. Um, so you have things like that where it's just Christianity claiming a universal human principle for its own, but not really contributing to the found, not really the Christian version of it contributing to the founding. Um, and I, I, so any way you slice it, and I went into this with, a, with an open mind. I went into the book thinking, uh, you know, I told you it was started as a law review for the Ten Commandments, and I thought I was going to have to concede a lot of influence when it came to the Ten Commandments. I thought I knew about I knew about the first two commandments, I knew about the last one, and I thought, well, those like definitely couldn't have had any influence. But it, you know, the more and more research I did on this, and the more and more I learned, the more and more it became clear that there is this just this fundamental irreconcilable disconnect. And when the founders were looking to the principles to craft this nation, they weren't looking to the Bible; they were looking to modern enlightenment thinkers. And, and I'll just say one more tiny thing about that, which is that I know a lot of people out there are probably thinking things like, but religion still has done a lot of good. It's done a lot of good on things like abolition. And it's done a lot of uh, good on, uh, on other things. And, and that's true. But historically, it is enlightenment and secular ideas and ideals that drag liberal religion into those positions. And I really take pains to lay this out in the book. And there are other great scholars who have done work on this. Professor Mark Smith has done some really great work on this. And it's counterintuitive to people. Um, you know, Mark, Professor Mark Smith says it's like the tail wagging the dog because people are like, no, 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 religion is good. And religion drove people to do good things, but it's, it's actually the reverse of that. Uh, but then religion turns around and takes credit for it, which is why people don't get it. And you can see this happening right now. This is why I wanted to take this little diversion because if you are listening to this, you remember the gay marriage debate and the victory for marriage equality, and you know who was on what side of those debates. And the religious argument was against gay marriage. There were a few small little groups on the correct side of history, but by and large, religion was on the wrong side of that debate. And you can already see religion starting to try to claim credit for marriage equality. And I think within 20 or 30 years, if we're not careful, that's going to be the narrative. Um, now, I, did, did, I, I admit right now, I did not do the best job of explaining that. It's a complicated idea. It is laid out in the book, and there are a lot of other sources that uh, you can also get to from the footnotes in the book uh, to, to help you understand what I'm talking about there. Awesome, man. Well, I want to point out, uh, for anybody who's still sitting there shaking their heads going, nah, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Let me point something out, okay? He entered into this thinking that he was going to have quite a few things that he was going to have to concede on, that he was going to have, oh, no, yes. they, they they got this one, they got this one. Point being that it is a – there are a lot of widespread misnotions, misinformation mm -hmm. in all of our heads on this topic. And I'm really glad that you brought that up and pointed it out and highlighted it the way that you did because I want to – I want to reinforce that, you know, if you, that, that so many of our biases are, or, or these, these sort of fixed ideas we, we want around with thinking that this is just the way things are and it's always been this way. 
man, you start doing about some deep dives into history and you start finding out where some of this stuff really comes from. And it's routinely eye-opening in a good way. I want to point out that learning this stuff and learning about our history and where this stuff comes from and why decisions were made the way they were and what the influences were that caused things to happen, it's fascinating, it is interesting, it's enlightening, and it does change your perspective, but sometimes in the most surprising ways. So I really, I you know, I don't want to throw it out here as like, you know, here's the link, go read it, you know, and, and, and people are like, yeah, you know, and all this. It's like, no, man, it's, it knowledge is fun. And it is interesting to find this stuff out. And it only helps either solidify or change or modify your views. And if it's more aligned with the truth, then don't we all really want to just believe true things? Yeah, I mean, I, I could not agree with with that more. You know, it's, it, it was it was a really fascinating I mean it took eight years to research and write um, I, I, I really went I did a deep dive on everything and I, tr- I tried to run down every counter argument and um, really steel man the other side you know there are there are a ton of citations in it every one of them I paid two guys uh, two researchers who were the lawyers a bounty for every error they could find and it's to me I like what you said there at the end because if you if you're a person of faith and you're so scared to read a book or you, you're, you're so your defenses are so up that you're not going to even crack the book. You know, I, I sent a copy of the founding myth to a pastor a couple of weeks ago, a guy named Greg Locke, and he took it and filmed himself burning the book. He took a blowtorch out and burned it. And from what he was saying in the two minute video, I know for a fact, he did not even crack the book open to read any he read the inscription that i wrote to him out loud um, but other than that he didn't read word one and you know if that if that's the way you're going through life not only is, is it sad because knowledge is so fun but i don't understand how you can ever claim to have a strong faith if you're not testing it with other ideas um so you know it was it was um a very it was a very strange experience to see your book burned the book, your own book burn. It was very bizarre. Um, but I also, I would really encourage people, no matter how much you think you know about this area, whether you're on my side or not, um, you're going to learn something from this book. And if you do agree with me, you're going to get much better arguments and still, I think, learn a lot. This is one common thing that I've heard um, is from people at book signings and things like that. They're just, they're shocked. They're on my side. You know, I had no idea that there was so much that we, that I didn't know on this. So I would really encourage everybody to go get, I don't care if you buy it, go to the library. My publisher hates it when I say that, but I love libraries. Go to the library. Big time. Absolutely. So where do they get it except at the library? Where can they they find this (laughs) Uh, thing? You can get it on Amazon, wherever fine books are sold. Um, If you want a signed copy, uh, FFRF will, uh, will, I I work at FFRF. So if you buy through the FFRF website, there's a little like comment section when you're checking out, you can say, ask Andrew to sign it and I'll sign it for you. It's a little more expensive through FFRF, but I also give uh, all the uh, royalties that I make from those sales back to FFRF. So you're doubly supporting the work that we do. Um, and then I, you can follow me and my random thoughts on Christian nationalism and American history and religious freedom and all that fun stuff. Um, Andrew L. Seidel on Facebook and Twitter and uh, the Instagram as well. 
Awesome, man. Well, I hope that people will give you a follow and will check out your book because it is well worth checking out. And we've only touched on, you know, bits and pieces of it throughout this podcast here. And, um, you know, and, and like I said, it, it learning's fun, you it know, <laughs> and, and, and it will only it, it will only give you new ideas to contemplate. You know, you don't have to be afraid of of, of knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to be afraid of knowledge. That's a, that's a, I think that might be a tagline. I like that. Knowledge is fun is a little better, though. Uh, yes. I don't know. They're both good. Nice, nice yes. yes. Well, thank you. Andrew, thank you very much for being on my podcast. Oh, Chris, it was my pleasure. I was very happy to do it. Thank you so much for having me on. Absolutely, man. Any, any questions, guys? Questions, comments, feedback of any kind, good, bad, or sideways, lay it on us, okay? And maybe Andrew will even, uh, you know, take a look when I post this and send him the link and, and see what kind of uh, kind of comments we're getting here or questions we're if getting. You, if I'm you sure get, we're if you get, get enough and you want to do a follow-up or something, let me know. I'd be happy to do a little extra Q&A for you. Awesome. Well, I can think of about three or four other things I want to do podcasts <laughs> with you about uh, when it comes to religion and the law. So, that, yeah. so I'm sure I'll be reaching out to you again. <laughs> Anytime, my friend. Happy to do it. Awesome. All right, folks, uh, if you are finding, by the way, as a final note on the podcast here, if you're finding this educational, informative, and entertaining, consider joining me on Patreon because that is what keeps the lights on, the mics on, and the show going. All right, I'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye.